Hello, everybody, and welcome to No Country. My name is Jay David Osborne. That is Chris Sacknessum. Chris, how are you doing this evening? Put a glide in your stride and a dip in your hip and come on board to the mothership. <laughs> That's awesome. I got done doing a cold shower just now and some Wim Hof breathing because I'm off of booze, nicotine, and uh, what else did I not do today? I guess those are the two major ones. Oh, I guess I haven't had caffeine in a while. So while we were talking about this episode, um, my brain wasn't working. I wasn't able to make the connections that I normally did. And I thought to myself, am I a, am I a, a buff robot fueled by, by you know, Michelob Ultra <laughs> and, and vape juice? Is that, is that, <laughs> but um, yeah, I'm feel, feeling pretty good though. <clears throat> Well, you sound good, and it's too early for a senior moment, so. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <clears throat> so I, we have a different structure to the show. We're going to get our important announcements out of the way at the top of the show. The first and most important announcement is that some of you will be listening to this on the official No Country podcast uh, sovereign stream, and some of you will still be listening to this on the JDO stream. So if you're listening to this on the JDO stream, listen very, very carefully. I want you to go to nocountrypod.podbean.com and subscribe to that because this will be the last episode that will be available on the JDO feed. It's all going to move over to its own independent thing just to keep those two podcasts separate. If anything that we say in this episode strikes your fancy, please do give us a holler at thebutterflyinyourmouth at gmail.com. We're getting some great responses. I think uh, Chris is going to talk about a few of them here in just a moment. Do follow us at BRBJDO on Twitter and Chris Sacknessum at Chris Sacknessum, K-R-I-S-S-A-K-N-U-S-S-E-M. And now, I just started this up today, there is also at... No Country 8, which is going to serve as a kind of ersatz filing system for many of the books and concepts that we mention on the show until we get the site up proper and get that resource channel fully fleshed out. So that's what I got on my end, Chris, if you want to add anything. No, that's a great start, David. Um, What we are trying to do here is to really build uh, an information knowledge uh, bank resource for people who are following up any of our ideas. I have a couple of books to mention that we, uh, you know, it was, uh, you know we're, we're chatting live. So, you know, we're not really rehearsing any of this. So there are some always some things that, that fall through the cracks from last episode. And I have one book recommendation um, to make um, about that. But first of all, just to, you know, a huge thanks to the people who are listening to this around the world now. Um, I'm just very excited. In Seattle, we have some of the smartest people I've ever met. Chris Schloop, my uh, Random House editor who bought my book, Zanesville, an enigmatic pilot who now um, works for Amazon in a very senior position. Uh, the beautiful Sierra Locke, who is one of our younger listeners, uh, a, a University of Washington student uh, who's about to graduate. Uh, really appreciate the time that, that these people are putting in. Tom Hansen, the author of American Junkie. Um, we've got some fabulous people across the entire continent, the skull-shaped continent of Africa, uh, including one of my favorite writers, uh, Unadi Slasha. Who, um, Slasha. Book, yeah. He's, uh, his book, Jaw Hills, is available from Clash Books. I think he's one of the, the finest writers working in um, multiple languages today. And um, I will be the first one uh, to be very proud if he ever wins the Nobel Prize. I think he's that good. And uh, I, I really appreciate his feedback. Um, you know what people... he is too, man? He's a real one. Slash oh, is a real one. He's a, he's a, he is the total deal. And, uh, and just a wonderful, wonderful human being, in addition to a shamanistic bridge between the worlds. If you don't know his, his uh, writing, people, um, please look him out, you know, uh, S-L-A-S-H-A, you know, Slasha. Um, Clash Books, Jaw Hills, uh, uh, you know, a genius, you know, in the emergence. And you could be one of the first people to really get on board 
a transitional moment in, in African writing. And I think African writing, in addition to Indian writing, is some of the most uh, exciting stuff happening uh, in the world today. And also um, some shout outs to the Southern Hemisphere, uh, most importantly to some people in the Solomon Islands. I, I, I know Americans don't know much about the Solomon Islands or think of, you know, Guadalcanal and, you know, I, I get all that from World War II. But uh, Makira Island is the third uh, largest island in the archipelago. And some people are listening to us under, you know, different circumstances than, than many of our uh, northern hemisphere people. They don't, you know, not everyone has electricity even. Um, so we appreciate people gathering around, you know, a machine shed near the wharf um, where there is internet connection um, to check, you know, just check us out. We really appreciate, you know, we want to be reaching out to um, the whole magical world. And they certainly define that. Um, even, you know, David talks about, you know, the butterfly in your mouth. Uh, that comes from the idea of those people, the Melanesians. And they said something really important to me, which I've never forgotten. Uh, we don't hunt for butterflies. We hunt with butterflies. And I've been thinking about that um, for a very long time. So thank you very, very much to this international uh, listenership, which is building. Um, and my only other comment about following up last, uh, the last episode was that David mentioned um, the concept of holism, which is a very, very big magical idea for both of us. And it did make me think that I, I, I wish I'd said it in the moment, but now I'm going to follow up. The physicist David Bohm's book, Wholeness and the Implicate Order, is something that we'll be talking about again and again. It will be on our reading lists and all this new information, material, bibliographies, course ideas that we're going to be providing. Uh, we're in this for the long haul. You know, we've got some really interesting ideas. So, uh, that's an important book. That's an important book. David Bohm's Wholeness and the Implicate Order. Um, so that's my announcements. Um, oh, one other thing. One other thing. Um, one of my best students from last year has just really done a beautiful piece, which I, and I love the title. You ready? Ready. What will happen to us if no one explains the irony? <laughs> oh, that's good. Yeah, yeah, I'm really good. pleased for. Her. I'm really pleased for. Her. I, you know, I, I really, I, um, you know, you, you've got a a new son on 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 the go, uh, due uh, in April. Um, but you know, the thing about students is that you 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 feel like a kind of parent to them, and and you just want them to succeed and to find mm -hmm. audience and to, um, you know, and, and finding audiences about sharing and connecting. And, and this is one of the things that we want to do with our podcast now is to build a community. Um, I joke, David, about looking for the, 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 the compound in Oklahoma that we can take over and, and make our own. And um, I'm kind of only half joking, right, David? You, you, you understand that? <laughs> yeah, no. Yeah. It's sort of one of those jokes, but not really a joke. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, if you can't what? be in the Solomon Islands, let's be in Oklahoma. <laughs> yeah, why not? Or we could be, uh, I don't know, maybe in Peru, maybe someplace like that, maybe Lima. Uh, nice, nice the, beachside town. On the coast, on the coast. Well, see, I i mean, I grew up in California, so I'm ready for the beach. I, I, I don't know. Were you born in Oklahoma? I was born in Virginia. I was born uh, near D.C. because... Um, Parents had me very young, and granddad worked at the Pentagon. So, uh, yeah, I was born in Fairfax County, Virginia. And then very shortly after that, we moved all over the place. So I was a pretty typical Army brat. I lived in Germany, Kentucky, uh, Oklahoma several times. And then we finally settled, and then mom and dad split around the time, uh, like the end of elementary school. So from sixth grade on, <clears throat> nope, sorry, yep, from sixth grade on, I was pretty solidly an Okie. 
Well, we could always think about moving to the coast. I, I think that would be great somewhere, you know, whether mm -hmm. it's Australia, uh, Oceania, um, you know, I mean, mm -hmm. the coast in, in Africa, anywhere. I mean, I want to live in Dakar. I think that'd be fantastic. You know, that's oh, the yeah. westernmost city in Africa on the Atlantic. I'm not really an Atlantic Ocean sort of guy. I'm more Pacific. I have to say that or Indian what? Ocean. But why is that? Uh, you know, it's the color of the water. It's the, it's the smell in the air. It's a tonal, uh, intuitive feeling of, and also the Atlantic is just nothing. The Pacific or the Indian can't be really intense, but the Atlantic ocean is hard going, you know, really. Um, it's hard sailing when I've sailed there. Um, and it just is a little bit more rugged. You know, um, psychologically, it's not as forgiving. It's not as womanly as the Pacific or the Indian Ocean. Does mm -hmm. that make sense? Yeah, it does. Well, all these different landforms and ocean forms, they do have personalities that are given to them. So, and, you know, just the same way as you can meet somebody and they can become your best friend and that same person can be somebody else's worst enemy. It's this interplay between you and this other personality, right? So, you know, maybe the Atlantic doesn't like you or. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, that's a beautiful line. You know, I, I, I'm sure Tom Waits isn't the only person who has said this. Uh, you know, you can like music, but does music like you, you know? Um, right, right. And Miles Davis, when I worked for him, you know, he would say that it's just you got to find that moment within something that works for you. And you also have to walk away from certain tunes, from certain moods, from certain vibes. They're just not, you know, it mm -hmm. is atmospheric. It's spiritual. It's, it's psychological. You just got to, you know, go with what you're doing and, and trust your own instincts about that. Is that, yeah, maybe the Atlantic Ocean just isn't for me. <laughs> right. So, Chris, what did you want to talk about today? Well, I thought we were going to talk about sort of... Um, the strange world of both ancient and relatively recent um, artwork, earth artwork on a fairly large scale that appears to have been created for viewing <laughs> by airplane. Mm -hmm. Many times before aircraft ever existed, um, I do have some thoughts about Robert Smithson. Um, do you know his work? No, I'm not familiar. Well, he, he's a very important artist. He, he created the spiral jetty in the Great Salt Lake of, of Utah. Um, okay. And he died, um, sadly, not much uh, at 35 um, oh, while it, doing an aerial survey of his last project called Amarillo Ramp in Texas. So... This tradition goes back a long time, but I think we're, we're starting with things like the Nazca Lines in Peru, to get back to your point about Peru. Um, we're talking about some very strange forms that are really just around the corner from me uh, here in Las Vegas. They're over the border in California, and I've written about them for uh, NPR, uh, called the Blythe Intaglios. There is no... Um, really clear explanation for the purpose behind these works. You know how everyone says in writing terms, oh, you've got to be, you know, aware of your audience, you know? It's like, mm -hmm. well, what was the audience here? Um, and not only that, these are projects on a grand Hoover Dam uh, civil engineering scale over mm -hmm. years decades involving hundreds of people that we, we have no idea really what's going on with them. Um, and that's before we even get to things like the giant, you know, the chalk giants in, in the UK, uh, which are a little bit, which are more recent in time. But, but to put the uh, Nazca lines in Peru and the uh, giant desert figures uh, near me, and there, um, there are a couple of, um, they're protected here now, so you can't really get right close to them, um, but they're giant humanoid figures, hybrid animal dream figures, 
which is kind of like uh, people are our logo, um, which comes from the Paleolithic caves. That's the idea for that. Um, so these are artworks that have some profound magical quality to them that really no one can decode. I mean, what, what, what's your view about that? Um, I have, I'd like to take it back to the Nazca to start to get to my thoughts about the magic that's going on with something like the Blythe and Taglios or the Nazca lines. So the Nazca were a very interesting people. Um, I believe they began fading out around 500 AD, something like that. But the Nazca lines themselves, I'm going from memory because funny enough, I used to do a, a lecture unit for, uh, for grade school kids about the Nazca lines when I lived in El Paso. Um, they're about 2,500 years old. Most of them have been dated to that. And they're very interesting. They're, they are, there's one of kind of a monkey, one of a human hand. There's one on the side of a hill that they call the astronaut, which looks like a cartoon alien waving. Um, it's very, it's very modern looking, very cartoony. And then there are others that are simply geometric shapes, patterns, there's lots of um, striated patterns of lines throughout the throughout the Nazca area. Naz- the Nazca area, by the way, the desert where this takes place is the driest place on Earth, drier than even the Sahara. Um, and so, but on the subject of the lines, so you go from these humanoid figures to animals, but then they're also very bizarre, like you're mentioning with the Blythe and Taglios, kind of very strange shapes and creatures. And you... You wonder, are these things that they've seen in their dreams? Or here's another possibility. What if those are the ones that they fucked up? They wouldn't know the <laughs> difference between the ones that they messed up and the ones that came out correctly. Do you see what I'm saying there? That's what's so funny about that. Another thing about the Nazca people that I find fascinating is that they were headhunters. Um there are when you you can go to see sort of preserved remains in these um, villages that have become museums to the Nazca people, and they had this very interesting way of sort of burying their dead in these little mounds of clothing. So it sort of looks like a person's uh, like in a little ball of their own clothes with a little skull sitting on top. But they would often execute their enemies by taking their heads and they would do they would do something called a head jar which is where a corpse would be sat cross-legged their head would be removed and then a jar with a human face would be placed on top of it for plants and trees to grow out of um which i think is a very interesting after death practice right there's a lot going on with that let me stop there for a second because i have a feeling that that just got your your blood moving do you have anything that comes to mind when when you think about that? Uh, well, um, I have to say that my shrunken head uh, from Borneo, it, I left. I had to leave that behind in the care of a good Australian friend. Um, but you know what? What I did think about was, um, you know, you and I are both concerned about the magical transcendence breaking down, dissolving. Um, of binaries. And you mentioned the, the an interesting conflict, which I don't think is intuitive at all, between highly geometric forms and incredibly strange hybrid dream creature, organic, you know, mythological, you know, really, really creaturely forms. Um, and I wonder what you think about, uh, to me, that seems when I think of that in really blunt terms, that seems to me the conflict and also the dynamic, the tension, remember in our electric, you know, electricity sort of episode, we talked about the need for tension, um, and it is a positive and negative charge, which, um, and people will remember that we said that Benjamin Franklin, you know, discovered that idea. And it is a really important, it's an important idea in relationships and uh, across the board. But I wonder if this this friction between a very rigid, formalistic, geometric 
And remember, we think of, you know, geometry in terms of the ancient Greeks, not sort of, you know, people in Peru. Um, but that's not true. Uh, a geometric form and these organic sort of beautiful monsters of dream and composite human animal uh, imagination creatures. I mean, what, what do you think is going on? Because there's no kind of way to bridge that in a simple way. It, it, it's, a, it's a fundamental dichotomy in human yeah, a, culture worldwide. Yeah, that, that's a tough one. So I like the idea of the, of the dream creatures. Um, and also I like the idea of those dream creatures to the minds of the Nazca people existing somewhere in the sky. I think that we have a very Western conception of what it means to be a god. Um, doesn't necessarily mean that I'm a, in, in any means an expert in uh, various indigenous forms of, you know, uh, belief in, in other beings. But I think that very often sort of older tribes of people had a better, had better working definitions for what was going on with, with dreams and dreaming and this relationship to spirits. So I think, you know, we were talking the other day about, um, some ideas we were like kicking around for like maybe what we would talk about. I'm really happy we got to Nazca lines um, because when you look at the ground from an airplane now, right. <clears throat> and let's say you look at, you know, New York city from, you know, 2,500 feet, however it is, however close it is when you get there, it looks very much like a microchip or a computer processor, right? Yes, it so, does. It's what were computer processors and microchips the dreaming of cities, right? Or the dream of a city, right? Did somehow that city seen from above, did, did that have some sort of magnetic, reflective contact with gods, right? That then came, beamed back down into our heads and became what we know of as, as the microchip or the processor. I'm not a computer guy, as you can see. Um, but... I think that that kind of thing, you can reverse engineer that into the, the sort of the Nazca people. It's it's basically a, a messaging, <clears throat> excuse me, a messaging system of some kind, right? It's it's some kind of bridge. And I've heard, I've never been privileged enough to visit any of these places myself, but I've heard that, well, no, that's not true. I've been to, I went to Stonehenge a year ago. And the energy there is very intense, even with all the tourism. But I've heard yeah. that the Nazca lines and places like that have a very similar creepy energy. And that's that's probably because they're tapping into that uh, that back and forth between spirits and people. Well, here's a thought about this, because I think that, that you're absolutely right. I mean, I can say that you, you can't now uh, get that close to the Blythe and Taglios. Um, you know, just west of me. Um, but, and, and you, if, if, if someone didn't tell you what they were, I don't see how you would have any design idea of, of what you were looking at, you know? Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. But that does not mean that you wouldn't have um, a kind of uncanny, eerie feeling of some energized field um, I mean, take away the cyclone fences, you know, just say, okay, we're going to take those down for a week and, and just hope people behave themselves and don't trash this stuff, which they didn't for thousands of years. The, um, the Blythe and Tagos are almost exactly the same uh, age as the Nazca lines. Um, so they survived for a long time. Um, but you, you, you don't have to have the aerial view which they appear to be designed to, you know, appeal to, to not, you know, you, you feel the energy around there. Uh, I, I mean, I, I challenge anyone to not feel that. Um, you know, you, you couldn't just go out there and have a campfire and some beers and, and think, oh, you know, this is just an ordinary place. That wouldn't <laughs> be how it would work. Uh -huh. You know, there's right. a sacredness if you want to, I don't know what other word to put on it for the moment, but I, you know, I, I know that you don't mind the word sacred. Um, and it, 
and it's something we're going to be talking about. But you know, in an anthropological sense, the, the difference between sacred and profane, magical, not magical, um, there is something about the informed energy, uh, and to to speak to David Baum's idea, the wholeness of the implicate order in certain places. Um, and I know exactly what you mean about Stonehenge. The first time I ever went there uh, was, I, I, I was just a scholarship student, you know, uh, really just with no money whatsoever on a tour bus. And I have to say, frankly, as, as, as beautiful visually as the things were, my, my first thought was, the, was just getting closer to uh, the girl sitting next to me in the bus, you know, right, right. I, I didn't have the big magical view that I had a very well. I had a, I had a magical view of a different kind, mm -hmm. um, but I still felt the intensity of it, and I think there are these 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 power points uh, around the world that um, you know and. It, you, you've spoken about the uh, an Australian writer, um, an indigenous Australian writer that you admire, who talks about the dream time power, and you know that's a huge deal, um, and it's very very real. Um, I'm not sure we have a Western way of packaging these ideas. Um, we kind of make them airy fairy sort of metaphysical sort of stuff, and what I'm hoping for, and I, I wonder if you are too, is that at some point. We might get those sort of a little bit hard-nosed sort of geological survey sort of people, but with some real new ideas out checking out these you know places around the world and going, this kind of psychic energy can actually be measured. What do you think about that? I think it could completely be measured because something that also comes to mind when I visited Bath, um, and particularly the, the actual Roman baths that are preserved pretty well, there's a period in time where you walk past a sacrificial altar and you can feel some major vibes coming off that thing. You feel vibes coming off of the huge bearded gorgon that's at the entrance to the baths, um, but you de but you definitely feel it coming from those altars where I'm sure tons of different animals have been killed. It's the same thing that you get in a haunted house. That's the, kind of the scary version of it, right? Um, mm -hmm. Or in places of great significance where, where great things have happened, um, you know, battlefields or um, it happens much more, obviously, in uh, in places like Europe where they have much more older places. But the similarity between something like a Nazca line, Stonehenge and a sacrificial altar is that the former were created through tons of sacrifice of, of time, Right. Um, time that was not ever given back and for which there was no real reward. And I think that, that when you talk about God's demanding sacrifice, that's sort of what they mean, whether it's food or it's it's has to be something that actually deprives the sacrificer of something of their own for this greater thing, whether you want to call that artistic energy or spirit energy or a god there's something being interplayed there with with sacrifice and it, you can see it in something like the sagrada familia which is still not done right um, right and there are generations of people who take on that job to build these cathedrals um who are like generation seven and it won't be done until the 10th generation so they didn't see it begin and they won't see it end but they take up uh sacred we're getting that same that same prefix, right? That same Latin prefix of, of sacred and sacrifice, um, which I think should maybe, I think you'd be a good one to pick up on that note. Well, you know, what, what you're talking about is, I guess, from a, a project management point of view, what what is holding these enterprises together across time? Across time is the only, you know, Thales, the, one of the first pre-Socratic proto-scientists philosophers said was asked where does lie wisdom and he said only in time um which i think is a simple answer but what he really meant was that there is no performance of the truth of any kind 
except in time. And if you look for the truth in the moment, well, you're looking in the wrong place. So how do these projects stay together? This is the thing that fascinates me is that, you know, you, you try to do like, um, I don't know, like a dramatic show or a movie or, uh, you know, you, you, you've been involved in, in, in shepherding uh, authors through the publication of a book. I mean, you're trying to have, you know, uh, a whole uh, family sort of thing happen. It's very hard to hold anything together. So how do how do these people manage that, you know, over time without this um, corporate capitalist structure that we you know we live in now? And the idea of a sacred uh, management plan. Um, I mean, imagine getting an MBA in sacred management. You know, um, <laughs> that would be a really radical That'd be idea. Very cool. It, you know, that would be very cool. I could be into that because what you're talking about as well would be so much better for things like the environment and people's lives in general. We we have one piece of the puzzle when it comes to a feeling of community, especially in places like America, which is that you need to be around people who you care about. But that is sort of one aspect, but the other one is, as you said, across time, right? Where do you fit in across, the, what is your community throughout time? What is your ancestry? Uh, what do you want your descendants to do? Like, what, what are you a part of? What can you contribute to that didn't begin and end with you? That is part of the perhaps narcissism that we see in a lot of cases. Not saying that there were never narcissistic people before. I mean, the myth of Narcissus is pretty old. But um, this idea that things start and then end and, and they're all in the service of you. TV shows and things like that are all in the service of keeping you entertained. That little useless plastic crap is just there to serve you and, and nobody else. What would it mean to be a part of a community across time rather than space? It'd be great for the environment. Well, you know, it starts in very simple ways. Um, one of the people I, I, that has influenced me a great deal is my friend um, Diane Karajanakis, who is... Um, Amongst she's an, involved heavily in terms of animal assisted therapy, but she is an animal connection with humanity. Um, but one of the things that she also does so beautifully is she's a very uh, humble and practical um, activist for simple changes at the very individual level that can accumulate and in, involve the giant mosaic of, of community, society, culture. Um, and she's changed my thinking a, a lot about that, that, you know, we all wonder, well, you know, what, what are we doing that matters? And imagine someone like, you know, gouging out some lines in a desert, you know, they're going, well, you know, what am I doing here? Where's the blueprint for starters? Um, right. Where, where are my wages for this? I mean, because we don't believe any of these, the projects that we've been talking about have not been created. And I think this is very important to mention. As far as anyone knows, this is not a slave labor kind of deal. Um, we're not really sure about the labor management, you know, uh, who did the work orders and how that worked. But we have no reason to believe this was, people being, you know, whipped over the back to uh, create some, you know, large trench. Uh, I don't think so. I don't think so. I think it was more of a sacred project, a, com a giant community project of great community vision, um, kind of like, you know, a wonderful sort of, um, you know, like the Hoover Dam or, 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 or getting a man on the moon. I, I don't think anyone would say that was some sort of exploitative exercise, whereas I'm not sure that's true of the Egyptian pyramids and some many other structures. Um, but, you know, I, I've been to Easter Island and no one knows really why and how and who carved the great Moai heads, you know. No one knows mm -hmm. that really. Um, mm hmm so we're talking about a kind of a, I mean, magic on a on a civil engineering level. Um, and every time I meet an engineer, 
I'm, I'm kind of, my first thought is to go, oh, geez, you're, you know, you're not really interesting to talk to. But then when I ask them some questions about what they do, and I realize what they do, I mean, making bridges, making arches. I mean, think of the arch as an idea. I mean, that's, that's a brilliant, brilliant idea. And so these giant figures um, carved in really difficult circumstances for inexplicable reasons. I mean, what is the answer? It's got to be magic. There's only, that's only, that's the only point. There is no functionalist societal reason in any they've tried. way that we can understand. You know, they, they've tried. They've tried to say that the Nazca lines are have some sort of astrological purpose. And that is frankly not true. I don't understand how uh, the monkey in particular would serve any real purpose. I'm a little confused. Sometimes I can be slow on the uptake, but I'm a little confused about how any of these lines would really say. I mean, with Stonehenge, you can see how it maps to the stars because it is a raised structure. The Nazca lines are not. Again, the whole sort of point of the Nazca lines is that none of the people who created them were able to see them. In fact, the first time human eyes actually laid on one of these things in its entirety had to have been, what, the 1950s? 1960s, maybe? Um, So it was kind of an unintentional time capsule in that way. But um, it is for magic. You know, I think it's it's quite. I was looking at the intaglios um, on Wikipedia, and there are a couple of structures of a, of a humanoid shape. But doesn't that look like they're in a coffin? Doesn't that that it shape does around to them me. look? It look does to me, but but I'm not sure that you know the idea. I mean, I, I the idea of a coffin is a fairly um, well. Either that's an intuitive uh, human shaped idea. Uh, mm-hmm. which I'm not really sure I buy because look at the, the beautiful uh, West African ideas of coffins, you know. Mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. I, I'm not sure that that really holds. Um, but, yeah, I, I mean, I, it's completely uh, it's completely strange. But what um, if it's the dreaming of a coffin, right? The way that a city is is like dreaming of a, of a, of a processor. What if those lines are dreaming of, of that? You know, it's all it all gets weird when you're in the cloud. We have a Ursat's Arconic cloud right now, thanks to Apple and Google. But what if there is this sort of cloud that's outside of space and time that you can touch on? Like, what it would be very, very compelling, I think, because uh, some of those animals in the Nazca lines, in particular, um, I'm not sure people would have would have seen some of them, especially the more dreamlike ones that just frankly don't exist. But so yes, that was that's my completely off the deep end one for the day. I got to I got to do at least one right where, where time isn't real. <laughs> David hasn't blacked out yet. Um, I'm well, blacked look, out I, yet. well, I'll look, I've got two things. Um, I mean, what you've said from uh, I, I've gotten back. You know, I, I, I basically started as a writer as you have. But I, I'm moving more and more into a sense of visual design, photography, painting, uh, looking at the world in a very, very visual sort of sense. And I kind of wish I'd gone to the Rhode Island School of Design, you know, and just really broken down to, I don't know, making my own language systems and, and just being visual, not not verbal. Um, but, but what you said is these things are amazing graphic design work by any standard that anyone in the world has ever achieved. But instead of the, the cave paintings and, you know, you know how how deeply involved I am with those and and you too. um, Those are on a different scale. I mean, we're talking about giant engineering projects how do you do that? Could could that be done today? I mean, what would it take? How much money? How much money? Because everything's about money now. How much money would it take to put, uh, take any great known logo, 
Take even the Nike logo, which is about the stupidest sort of simplest sort of like, oh, you know, it's like a, a skew, you know. How much would it take to really get that beautifully executed at a deep level, uh, say in the in the Nevada desert, you know, near my home? You're talking some money and you're talking about some people involved and you're talking about some big ass earth moving equipment, you know, big ass tractors have. I don't know if any of, of our listeners have been in serious mining earth moving country like uh, the Highlands of New Guinea um, or Bougainville. You know, I mean, it's just like these things are giant. They're so big that it takes like a team of mechanics to even consider maintaining them. Not just a couple of people. I'm talking about 40 people. They're like jetliners, you know? And how do these people do all this stuff without that kind of commitment, you know, that energy, that that technology? I just don't understand it. I don't think it's possible. That's the beautiful yeah. thing. It's not possible. <laughs> Right, right. Well, that's kind of when you had mentioned imagining how these things would have been done. I like to think that, you know, in, in my mind, I like to think that each one took hundreds of years and that there was a kind of artisan that passed down to an apprentice how to properly measure the lines and how every day you go out and you do the exact same amount of scoops of the dirt right? Almost as a sort of meditative um, Buddhist, like Buddhist walking type practice. So I'm imagining a man living, uh, perhaps becoming an apprentice when he's, you know, 10 or 11, passing away when he's in his 80s. And for his 70 years, perhaps he, he created, you know, one arm of the of the monkey, right? But it was a sacred thing that he did every single day for that for that time, right? And it was just this kind of looking at high speed videos of plants moving throughout the day, how they wave around. And, you know, if you were to be looking from the air and look down on a Nazca line and you hyper fast forwarded it up for maybe five, six, seven hundred years, you would see it being sketched out pretty quickly. But that it was an act of faith and sacrifice you know, almost an ascetic practice in addition, in addition to an artistic one. Um, I like to think of it like that anyway. Well, I've got two things on this. Um, Hieronymus Bosch, who I think is probably one of the most lateral genius people yeah. Oh, in yeah. any culture of all time. You know, he said, as far as we know, this is what we don't have really much knowledge about him, really. But we do know that he was in, just incredibly committed to the apprenticeship program. And I want us to bookmark this idea to talk about apprenticeships and technical skill and building back expertise into communities for future reference. Because what you said is, is I think, really important that some of these great, you know, geniuses or the people who were in charge, let's just say the project managers, okay? Mm -hmm. um, they were going to die. And yet they had to pass on that sort of lesson, that knowledge, that plan, that blueprint. And it's kind of what, I mean, I mean, in a weird way, David, it's a little bit like what you and I are doing. It's like, we're, you know, I mean, you're going to outlive me, hopefully. And, um, we, we pass down knowledge, we pass down blueprints, sacred or profane or, or just civil engineering, but we pass down things to the next generation. We, we, we build that network of knowledge. We, we hardwire it. You know, one of the things that I, I don't know, if we, did we talk about this when we were talking about electricity? I love my electrical engineer people who talk about soldering in you know, knowledge, mm -hmm. you yes. know, and it, it's not like airy fairy, you know, conceptual sort of things. Read this textbook. No, they're talking about it being soldered in. And I think this is, you know, this is a key thing that you were talking about there that we're, we're, we're passing down 
knowledge and hope and a blueprint, um, but in very forensic physical terms, um, which is maybe the only, I mean, how else could it really be done? You know, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, isn't that maybe the idea that, that, and going back to your idea of, of like, you know, from the air, um, well, microchips look like cities, you know, and I, I was thinking about this, um, people who know my photographic work know I do a lot of um, very, very close up, uh, what I call forensic photography. And, uh, you know, I was just thinking, I shot a boulder this morning, a boulder, you know, around the corner from me, a boulder, right? Um, But I can tell you as a skydiver, the close-up shot looks exactly like what the land just outside, you know, away from the houses looks like from 12,000 feet. As it is above, so it is below. That's the great Gnostic belief, right? You know? It is. Uh, It's a magical belief. Um, It is. So all these things kind of connect that, you know, design is everywhere and implicit in nature, implicit. So it comes up out of nature. It doesn't come down or does it? Because we've got earth diver myths all around the world, you know? So it's one... It's all one meditation, you know? It's the fallers and the risers, you know? Well, I think we do want to segue into someone who's really important <laughs> in a very strange way. Um, you know, anytime someone's last name gets turned into a kind of adjective, I, I think that we need to pay attention to that. I, I, I do that with my students. I say, well, you know, try to make your name something significant. Um, Charles Fort is someone we're going to be talking about more in the future. And I I really like this. uh, I hope people do have some idea of Charles Fort. He was a a friend of of Dreiser. He was the kind of the, well, his dream was just to, to track down every anomaly that he could as a kind of argument against uh, any kind of um, simple definition of uh, truth, certainty, science. Um, I'm a little surprised he isn't more highly thought of in this day and age when we're kind of questioning the nature of objective truth. Oh, he's, he's really the patron love- saint. He's the patron saint of damned facts. Absolutely he is. Absolutely he is. And I love this. I think this is a really beautiful observation. He said, people with a psychological need to believe in marvels are no more prejudiced and gullible than people with a psychological need not to believe in marvels. And I, I think he's speaking down the years, both both in, behind him and, and to our time, that um, the idea that, that maybe all our orientations towards any kind of truth or belief hinge on our own personal psychological hopes, you know? Um, for, Freud said a neurosis is a secret you're keeping from yourself, you know, Um, which I think is the truest thing I've ever heard. Um, But all our our constructions of truth are psychologically based. And when we look at these great, weird, ancient, uh, sacredly created, or we don't even know, our earthworks around the world, um, we really have no idea. And to to go to someone in nearer time, Robert Smithson, who was an individual who, you know, a New York artist who just was bored with gallery life and wanted to make stuff because he was a he was from New Jersey and he liked, you know, rummaging around in mud ponds and digging out fossils and, you know, he was trying to do something away from a gallery context. When someone asked him, why would you spend years alone? creating the spiral jetty, you know, in the Great Salt Lake. 
Well, he said because of things like the Nazca lines and Stonehenge and, you know, these kinds of things, you know. He, he wanted to participate in an ancient sacredness. Uh, so is he just an individual artist of a, of a modern era using some modern technology? Or is he an extension over time, you know? Mm-hmm. How do you think that that works with literary canon? Do you think there's anything similar going on with that, with being in conversation with a tradition that extends back to, you know, thousands of years ago? Is, is there a connection or am I stretching? Oh, no. I ho- I think that that was entirely the po- the place that I started with. I'm not sure that writers today can, can really... Uh, have access to that but um, no I think that the whole point was um, I mean I mean really when I started off I, I, I you know I was getting very high and I thought I want to sit under the trees with the you know the heroes of the past and be part of some sort of you know great conversation dialogue pageant play theater uh, no I, I, I think that's I mean, why else would you do it is another way to put it. Let's flip it around and just say, well, why else would you be involved in self-expression if you're not trying to, otherwise it's, you know, that's the, to me, that's the difference between tagging and great graffiti. Great graffiti artists are trying to be back in the caves, you know, whether they know that or not. Whereas someone just sprang, yeah, you you know, just really pissing on a wall uh, they have no idea about anything. Um, but yeah, no, I, I, I think all of, but that's true of art, visual art in every form. That's true of music. Um, I think as, as film and, and photography age, that becomes something that, that happens. I mean, I can't take a photograph and not think of, you know, Ansel Adams or Edward Weston or, you know, any number of people, um, no, I, I think it is all about a dialogue. It's a dance. It's a dance. People, I wrote this today. It's kind of a, it's not really on earth art per se, but it's it's about the idea of, um, forgive me, I'm going to put on some reading glasses. Uh, actually, I'm going to put on my sunglasses, as George Clinton said. I don't wear reading glasses, really. Um, <laughs> I'm going to let you uh, work out the title for this, because I think you'll get it. Um, the Shroud of Turin, UFOs, Killer Bees, Atlantis, The Lost Dutchman Mine. Almost everyone has some sort of soft spot for strange phenomena, ghost stories, riddles, and unsolved occurrences on back roads. The woo-woo stuff. It's hard not to be a little bit interested in reports of spontaneous human combustion, crop circles, cattle mutilations, missing persons, giant hailstones with faces, and of course creatures like Ogopogo or Sasquatch. Everywhere is open territory for the weird, especially Oklahoma David. Myths and monsters know no boundaries, especially Oklahoma David. We call them urban legends because the possibly paranormal or at least puzzling can happen in the depths of a metropolis as well as swamps and towns where the sun always seems to be setting behind an abandoned insane asylum or Oklahoma did. But there's something, there's nothing quite really like the rural country for cryptozoological curiosities. When I lived on the land in Australia, the entire region was rich in phantom lore. But sooner or later, the subject of mystery panthers came up. I even thought I'd seen one once myself, slinking across a track at dusk. A team of dart players at one of the nearby pubs called themselves the Mystery Panthers. They were pretty good if they weren't too drunk. 
the history of sightings went all the way back to the beginning of the, 19, of the 20th century. One theory was that a couple of actual panthers had escaped from a circus back in the 19th century and had managed to interbreed themselves alive still. Some people it was said it was due to a mishap at the main zoo to the south. Others went the other way, believing the elusive beasts were the surviving descendants of pre prehistoric predators. Everyone loved a good mystery panther story. And they were very handy as ways to turn the blame away from errant dogs if any livestock got their throats cut out. Then, one unusually wet autumn, before people started finding footprints in the slow-moving mud around the rising creeks, the whispers began again. And then, they did start finding footprints. John O'Halloran, the ditch witch operator, found some around his dam. Blaze Baskins, he'd been hunting his whole life, insisted the ones he found were made by a cat. A big cat. A man from the city museum came up to confirm and give his expert opinion. Pretty soon, people were recounting that they'd seen something almost everywhere. Of course, they couldn't be sure. It was always early morning or twilight. Dogs were thought to be barking and behaving with unusual stress and interest at night. It didn't take long for the local newspaper to start running and rerunning stories about the history of the mystery panther sightings. It was a panther-demic, a mixture of excitement, fear, and beers at the bar speculation took hold. Remember those dark players? They started to win. It was my skeet-shooting friend Ian who made the discovery. And since he worked for the local paper, he probably would have felt obliged to spill in any case, but by chance that option got taken away. Early one morning, out walking his lap, he came upon an old man named Josiah Burnside, who'd been an engineer of sorts at the foundry, an all-purpose machine troubleshooter many years back, long before I'd arrived. He'd been regarded as a sharp tool once, until his wife died suddenly of pneumonia. And then he dropped his bundle, as they say in Australia. The couple had never had any children, so Josiah sold out in town and moved to a decrepit miner's cottage way back in the bush beside a creek that had lost its name probably around World War I. He was known to be an excellent amateur taxidermist and had been skilled in a range of hobbies. Well, carving, for instance. For a while, he'd been seen in public from time to time, looking ever more frayed and grizzled on each occasion, and, you know, a little loonier. At some point, he made friends with a mongrel dog that people thought he called Ruffian, and then he gradually vaporized more completely into the trees and crumbling house until my friend Ian stumbled upon him in the mist one morning. What was he doing? With great care and considerable expertise, he was using some hand-carved wooden claws, precision made to resemble a large cat's paws, to place a tail-tale set of tracks in the mud. Josiah Burnside had been caught out. He was the secret of the most recent appearance of the Mystery Panthers. He was asked to give a statement to the paper about the pursuit of his stratagem. He shrugged a little mischievously, but insisted that he was innocent of any guile or mean intention. He said... And I heard him say this, people need mysteries. They need questions. We need things to have 
some wonder about. We need wonder.